Hello. Welcome to my art form. It's time for post-orthodoxy, a show about changing our minds. Yeah, baby. With your host, Dark and Ainsley Sevier. Maybe what they believe about reality isn't all of reality. What? I know, right? We are on a mission to have a better time with more people more often. The question is more like, how do you get there? Post-orthodoxy explores strongly held beliefs, how those belief systems divide or connect people, and what might be found beyond those reality bubbles. Keep calm. Don't lose your head. I've got a piece of chocolate here with me because i got anxiety about doing this. Welcome to this neighborhood, neighbor. live oh we're we're gonna do it yeah we're gonna do another show with- do it. i'm sure there's one of those songs like from the muppet show we're all together again again we're here we're here we're here like that that song yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're gonna do another show together again. another opening of another show that's what i was that's about. the thing that's yep. it, there we go <laughs> welcome to post-orthodoxy uh this is a show we used to say it was a show about changing our minds changing our minds and and now uh, we've pulled back a little bit. <laughs> Didn't realize what kind of task that was <laughs> fully. And now we, we like to say it's a show about introducing reasonable doubt. Yes. Whether anybody involved decides to change their mind is up to them. And we can have tea and talk about it if you want to. But we're not out here trying to change people's minds. We are absolutely obsessed with the concept of reasonable doubt because Dark and I both grew up in... Um, extremist religious groups that told us what reality was and how we had to think about it. So anytime we smell somebody else doing that, trying to tell us what reality is and how we have to feel about it, um, little alarm bells start going off like a gaydar, but for bullshit. Yes, it's called enhanced immunity to bullshit. We were inoculated. Natural immunity, baby. Enhanced natural. I don't know how natural that was. That was a problem. (laughs) That's true. Um, yeah, we like to explore ideas. The idea of post-orthodoxy, uh, the name kind of gives it away. We do like to discuss things um, that might rub up against people's closely held beliefs, uh, dogmas, and orthodoxies. As I say a lot in our propaganda, at some point we will turn our gaze on whatever ah. your sacred cow is. Not on, not just to piss you off because that's no. just what we do. And just because we talk about a topic is not necessarily us endorsing the topic. Mm-mm. We need to explore ideas without necessarily endorsing them. This is like the Greeks Entertain used to do. Things, they yes. used to talk about things with the understanding that we needed to be um, stretching and exercising and expanding our mental muscles just like we do in the gym or on a walk with friends. And it didn't necessarily mean that you were endorsing any one thing or another. High schoolers know this in uh, high school debate tournaments, you have to take various sides of arguments to prove that you know how to logically defend that argument, not just defending it from an emotional point of view, whether you agree with it or not. And also how to question yourself. Yes. Can you question yourself? This is where we're at. Uh, This show. When was the last time you asked yourself why about any of the things going on around you? One of the big ideas of the show was to talk to people smarter than us. Uh, and hopefully they could lead us to people who are, they think also are smart people mm-hmm. and we can get smarter. That was a general vague idea. Collective smarterism. Yeah. So uh, uh, if uh, you do Twitter, we have the post-Orthodoxy Twitter page. I found this cat on Twitter called the Ethical Skeptic. Mm-hmm. And then I went down a rabbit hole through his website 
Um, we actually did a little piece on one of his pieces a few weeks ago on um, misdis and malinformation. Yes. And then I just reached out to the ethical skeptic and said, would you like to be a guest on the show? And he said, yes. He said, yes. So uh, we're going to be abbreviating the ethical skeptic as Tess. Um, the last time we had an anonymous guest, it was Antifa Joe. Antifa <laughs> Joe um, wore like full covered, everything was covered yep. and came into the radio station because I was already video live streaming at the time and answered some of Dark and Mokai's questions about the Antifa movement and ethos for post-Orthodoxy's precursor show, Copacetic Conversations. So welcome, Tess, to... Um, this anonymous edition of Post-Orthodoxy. And thank you so much for taking time on your Sunday to spend with us. Well, thank you, Ainsley and Dark. It's a pleasure to be here with the Seviers on your, your excellent podcast. Woo-hoo! And you actually, like we were doing research on you and you were doing research on us. And I got to say, that's an <laughs> honor. <laughs> well, I definitely wanted to know, you know what, what I was stepping into here. <laughs> Why? But, uh, but I was very choice. pleased. <laughs> well, if you... If you if, if you've read my website, and you you two have, but if the listeners have read my uh, website, they'll know that uh, I may not come to the same conclusions, but the methodology, the ethic, the uh, the the lowering of self, and the and the raising of objectivity, that's uh, that I bear in common with mm-hmm. with both of you. Challenging pseudo skepticism, its agency, and cultivated ignorance. Theethicalskeptic.com. Um, and for those of you that haven't participated in post-Orthodoxy before, we make this chatbot here on the screen so that wherever you're watching from, YouTube, Facebook, or twitch.tv slash the Seviers, you can send comments in and interact with each other and with us and with Tess during the show live. Very good. Yeah, this is meant to be a conversation. And uh, if It was you- pretty funny when you first emailed Tess and said, hey, would you like to be on our show? And he was like, well, it looks like you guys don't talk about anything controversial, and that's safe. And we were like, oh, shit. <laughs> Let me explain. It's too long. Let me sum up. <laughs> yes. Um, we did a little breakdown. He, he watched us break down his story on mis, dis, and malinformation and still wanted to talk to us. So that's we just we're happy to have you on the show. We're going to do our best to keep looking at the camera so that we're engaging with the audience right. and with the guitars they're standing in for tests. <laughs> um, I was really hoping you'd have a fish tank or something, but those are some beautiful guitars. Do you play music? I do. I'm intermediate. I'm not really that good. So you, what you're seeing on the wall there is a collection as much as it is a, uh, a set of tools for music. Mm. But I play guitar every day. I'm in my studio right now. I wanted to get better sound quality for the show than just me sitting oh, yeah. on my little microphone at my desk that, you know, what I do for business, that'll get by. But, but if I'm going to do a quality production, I wanted to be in the studio. So those are, are four of my, my, uh, four or five of my, uh, most prized guitars. It's a, a Gibson ES, uh, ES five, uh, 1970, a 1968 ES 35, 335 Gibson, and then a super chet 1973 super chet a 1980 Martin V 28. And then in the foreground, a Taylor Custom GS, which has a beautiful sound to it. And that, that's the one that has its own hat? No, no, that's the one. No, the, oh. the Martin D28 <laughs> has the hat, my river hat, my sailing and river hat. Yes. <laughs> which he uses when he goes sailing on the river. Oh, yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that works out. Um, yeah, we really appreciate you having on the show. Can you maybe just give us uh, the audience that has not perused your website yet? Um 
what is the Ethical Skeptic website? What was the motivation for it? And how's it going? Well, it, it basically it's a, uh, a method of challenging this orthodox grooming uh, that we all undergo as we as we grow up. Uh, and what, by the way, what, the context of grooming that I use when I use that word here, I am talking about all orthodoxy. I'm not talking about the the visceral use of the term right now politically. Mm. Uh, right. So just so everyone's aware the of that, it's button. an excellent yeah. term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to use it in a hot button fashion. That's, you know, all the rage on Twitter. Right. That's not what I mean. What I mean is the more, the more classic definition of grooming and it pertains to orthodoxy. I don't want to carry forward with those things I was taught at age 13 and 14. I, I want to challenge that the ability to change one's, one's mind is a sign of, of both um, uh, human and spiritual maturity, and uh, I want to. It's not just that you want to change your mind, but but bear that ability to say, "No, I'm lesser than this issue. I can be convinced mm, mm. something else." So as as I came along, I, I you know obviously as as young people do, they'll look into a number of different. Uh, what did you, what did you call it? Dark moving from the irrational to the absurd, or or something like that in the last podcast. <laughs> um, you you know you typically do that as a young person. You want to to engage with the world and understand why you're here, who, who you are, and in that process, you run into a number of uh, fringe and esoteric subjects. So you have to begin to develop those skills, which allow you to be immune to the to the BS. But what I saw during that time is you know I lied with. Uh, groups that were almost hyper immune to the BS. They, they were so skeptical that they became stupid in the process. Mm. And it too became a, a form of orthodoxy. As I began to leave classic religion, you know, I discovered this is not a false dilemma. It's not a bifurcation. That doesn't mean I jump straight into nihilistic skepticism as the alternative, because I'm just jumping to the other eight extreme extremist 8%. I didn't want to do that. And so that's why I came up with this concept <laughs> of so, ethical so happy skepticism. Right now. <laughs> no, good, good, good. <laughs> that you don't you, just because you can change your mind does not mean that you need to jump to the other extreme right off the bat. Oh, once you but binaries, binaries are so binaries, stress relieving. Yes. <laughs> They're so safe I, and comfortable. So eth- ethical does not mean moral or good in this context. I always say that I'm just I'm just like everyone else of the of a reasonable persuasion, uh, you know, a non-criminal persuasion. <laughs> it it, ju- it just means following a standard and uh, well-proven praxis. So it's not a boast of any kind. And then, of course, skepticism simply means to go and look. Um, and and that's that's the the purpose of or the at least the context for the skepticism I define. So go and look at things, examine them. Don't don't come to a conclusion. Suspend your disposition, the Pyrrhonistic version of skepticism, and uh, and follow a standard praxis to to figure out what you can. But don't don't be too hasty to jump to a final destination. Wow. I, th- I think one of the reasons that your Twitter handle jumped out at me, I don't know where I saw it or how I came across it, but it jumped out at me is because I've been very much focused for the last year and a half on the idea of ethics and accountability in society. And how do you have a society, a civil society, without accountability, which requires some ethical standards? And I feel like what I've been seeing is we're just in a, a sort of 
uh, trauma hopscotch where we just keep hopping from crisis to crisis and we don't seem to have the follow through that I used to remember in society where if there was some transgression or some ethical lapse, there was attention brought to it and then perhaps there was some accountability. Um, and I'm, I, I, uh, that's how I sort of your, the idea of the ethical skeptic jumped out at me and I started following your stuff fairly closely. Um, and then uh, we've been doing a lot of work on misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, and then you wrote the article. So, um, <laughs> I feel like, uh, it, it's nice to have, uh, uh, the camaraderie of people who are concerned with the same things on the show. <sighs> well, absolutely. Uh, I think, uh, you know, just to give the listeners some of my background, I attended uh, undergraduate school at a tier one uh, engineering school and then went into the Navy and Naval Intelligence and then uh, took many courses, <laughs> was groomed, took many courses on uh, data assimil- assimilation, the, uh, the normalization of data, the detection of propaganda structures, uh, intelligence, counterintelligence, uh, you know, the nature of propaganda. So I have some professional training in that regard. There are those who progressed much further, of course, than I have. But I use that to go into strategic consulting. And, in, and to that end, have done over probably 200 projects in national infrastructure, uh, from famine in India to uh, pharmaceutical and medical strategies for nations. You know, should I develop roads first or should we develop our mineral resource exploitation first? And who should we ally with to do that? Or do we develop education first? Or how important are air conditioners in our third to fifth grade elementary school classes? Those types of decisions are the are the uh, the deliberations that my teams help countries make over Mm. the years. And so there was a lot of analytical work that went into it, a lot of circumventing propaganda that was required because all nations are just filled with steeped with propaganda. And, And that propaganda helps. It's an irrelevance that blocks your ability to see what I call the critical path or the shining pathway of success, you know, understanding how important air conditioning is in, a, in an equatorial mm. elementary school, oh, it's, it, it doesn't show up in the numbers. You've got to be able to pull that from out of the morass, the mm-hmm. mire of irrelevance and how begin to express that. How do we quantify how hard it is to actually educate yourself correct. when your body is in distress? Yes, yeah. correct. Mm. And, and education requires not a 90, 90th percentile attention it requires, you know, 97% plus and things that are, that are just minor, like, uh, goodness, autoimmune mm-hmm. disorders, uh, excess, excess allergic reactions or asthma, mm-hmm. or just the lack of presence of, you know, proper air temperature. All those things can defeat the fragile mm-hmm. infrastructure, which is a personal education to, you know, to higher degrees or progress to higher degrees. So that, that's been my focus through the through my decades of, of work, uh, there are very few people who have done over 150 national infrastructure or mm. corporate strategy projects. Very few, and by very few, I'm saying I haven't met any. <laughs> and I do this for a living, but uh, <laughs> but uh, but uh, but I've I've since moved on from that, and now my focuses are uh, on green energy, uh, and as well. Uh, defining the trade of food based on its nutri- nutrient value and not its appearance and weight. Mm, mm. Wow. That's really, that's going to be increasingly important. Yes. Right. And it came directly from the work I did in Africa and Asia, 
the the amount of autoimmune skyrocketing autoimmune disease, the amount of skyrocketing diabetes in Southwest Asia, in Asia Asia proper, and in and beginning to in Africa as well. And then the critical lack of energy that you know that affects things just like having conditioned air during that critical third to fifth grade you know elementary school progression in one's life. These subtleties. Uh, are, are what are important with regard to rationalizing what next steps man should undertake or countries should undertake. That's a, it's, it's refreshing to hear about next steps. Um, that's something that we are trying to focus more on this show. I think our first two uh, seasons we were dealing with uh, diagnosing the problems. And this season we're looking at what kind of visions are available for a future versus just waiting for the next crisis to define our news cycle. Um, and so we're really interested in hearing from people and their ideas of what the next steps are. What, uh, how do we move forward as a species on a planet versus uh, a demographic uh, opposed to other demographics? So I'd be interested to hear your ideas maybe later on in the show about what the future, like the positive future might be like. Maybe what you think about, I don't know if you have any feelings or thoughts about the World Economic Forum and their uh, plans, the Great Reset. I've looked into that a lot. And it's, to me, I say it sounds like um, Star Trek fourth level civilization where everything works except the oligarchs are still in control. Um, so I'd be curious to hear if you have any thoughts on that. And then, of course, we'd like to get into, uh, I'd like to maybe start with one of the articles that you sent to us to read. Um, and maybe you can talk to us a little bit about that article. Encourage, I'd like to encourage other people to go to the, the website and read it. Yeah, I'm just going to be pimping that website all day. Yeah. I wanted to jump right into the middle of your article on, um, on the awesome <clears throat> insistence of cataclysmic mirage theory. Yeah, that's the one that's got uh -oh. me chomping at the bit. You're going to get me in trouble right off the bat. <laughs> <laughs> as as um, the, little, the little inner baby evangelical Christian in me pops up and gets mad about you claiming that, <laughs> that people have ethics and integrity outside of God telling them what the right thing to do is. Now, present-day Ainsley absolutely believes that people in general have ethical centers, and those ethical centers can be fucked with over the course of their life by nature or by nurture. I mean, by nurture and environment. Um, and I think some people, a very, very small amount of people, can potentially be born without a nat what we might call a natural ethical center. And that's where we get things such as psychopaths and sociopaths. However, uh, I was reading through your article, The Awesome Insistence of Cataclysmic Mirage Theory, and I got to the section on the septum precepta. Pre Precepta? Precepta? Which kind of it's Latin def, uh, pronunciations do you use? Um, the septum. I was really mad when they told me that you had to pronounce C's like C-H in oh. Latin. I was, I was yeah. like, no, I've been doing it differently. Um, <laughs> but I was kind of like, you're acting as though these ethics exist outside of anybody deciding what is ethical. Um, and, and I guess that's still a bit of my evangelical upbringing that just needs to be massaged. <laughs> but, um, where did you get the septum precepta test? Well, it's basically, it's an extrapolation of many of the right, the human rights observations I've made while doing national infrastructure projects. And it, it, it's a suspicion 
Uh, it's just like saying, you know, how important is air conditioning to an elementary school in an equatorial nation? You can't, you, there are no numbers. You, you can develop numbers after the fact, but you have to sort of understand and, and create a suspicion or a notion before you develop the numbers. You have to be and going so, and looking for that data. Yes, correct. And if you don't develop the notion in advance of the numbers, you're never going to get anywhere. So something has, something has to be the scintilla, the spark that says, hey, this is wrong. And, mm -hmm. and have 100 people challenge them and say, oh, no, that can't be. Tell me why it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And then you undertake the epistemology to prove why something is wrong. So the septum precepta pre or precepta, whatever the Latin is. I took three years of Latin and I can't remember. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, I can definitely the, tell uh, you it's a ch sound. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there, there, are, there are derivatives of what I observed. So you uh, wrote the regard... septum precepta. Well, I'm sorry, Angela. You compiled the septum precepta. Yes, I did. It's a derivative, however, of the, of the, the work that I did on famine uh, medical pharmaceutical strategies in various nations and the the net things that cause are the root cause of human suffering and so I, I it took me decades to think through this you know it's it's easy to say well it's crime and corrupt leaders that cause human suffering and, and there's a contribution there certainly but is it also fundamental errors in in the way we regard humanity and human rights. Mm. And that's where I headed with the septum precepta that, that some of the things we were taught in orthodoxy, and in particular, this, this thing that I term cataclysmic mirage theory, it's a penalty that is placed on your shoulders. It's bundled and placed on your shoulders, which can never be resolved, can never be removed. And you, no matter what you could do and how much money you give, it can never be uh, mollified. It's or, a penalty or, for a prescribed sin. Or, a, or for a, simply for a, an objective sin or simply because you exist. Mm, it's a mm. penalty that, that has to do with your mere existence. And this is a reaction to that condition. Mm. The septum precepta says that you cannot, and it says it sounds so authoritative, I made it up, but I made it up from, from wisdom <laughs> from and experience. observation of nature. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I want to put balance there. It, it contends that you cannot condemn a person simply because of their genetic heritage or their spiritual heritage or the planet they live on mm. or the color of their skin. And you cannot condemn a person because they're the son of the son of the son of someone who did something wrong years ago. All the way back to, in this mythology, Adam. Mm -hmm. Adam did something wrong to offend a, a being, and supposedly we all bear that responsibility. Now, what I'm saying here in the Septum Precepta is that's not correct. And even if we did something wrong, yet we were not fully knowledgeable, we're still not culpable. Mm. So there's a problem here. Now, it's not that I'm countering necessarily Genesis in the mm -hmm. Bible, in the, in the Orthodox version of the Bible. It does counter that logically. But when I apply this, I'm talking about more orthodoxies than simply just this, uh, you know, this uh, monotheistic, Abrahamistic it's uh, legacy the, that we outline. The concept of original sin and its load of suffering that it has unleashed Correct. on society is an excellent and simplistic example that most people have heard about. Well so. stated. That, that, that ontological pressure is part of what causes 
suffering globally. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's hard for people to perceive this. It is the, the, uh, the, I don't know what you would call it, the, the lurking, the Hegelian fourth party. It's the evil lurking in the background, uh, absolutely loving that no one's aware of it. And it's this mm. ontological pressure. Ontological means the nature or state of being something that is separate from the objective epistemology. This ontological pressure that we can't articulate and perceive is what stems us toward psychopathic and sociopathic behaviors. And those who see where they're headed will take a more of a middle road, but still don't take a road that helps alleviate human suffering. And it's this original condemnation, which is the trick, which I believe uh, is producing this pressure to the extreme. Mm. Uh, I want to, the phrase, the, the, the uh, cataclysmic mirage theory, that's a theory beyond your work that you're talking about? It's, it really comes from Scott Adams, uh, what, what in the world did he call it? And I know I have this somewhere, but anyway, uh, slow moving disasters. Scott Adams is the creator of the Dilbert uh, sure. comic strip. I think he identified. I, yeah. I think he may be the reason disasters. that I found you. Yeah. I think we found you through following Scott Adams actually. Yeah. Yes, yes, he, he does retweet me uh, a time or two. Uh, that, that's a big thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's not a brag. It's, a, it's just that's it's just a, a fact, lot of people guys. found me through his, his <laughs> retweets. That's and, super uh, exciting. Yeah. He cited this thing called slow moving disasters, which was aptly titled given the, you know, the comedic and, and comic strip way in which he wanted to to uh, frame that. Mm-hmm. Cataclysmic mirage theory means that something terrible is happening. It's either loosely or directly your fault, and therefore you now owe me observance for eternity. Right. <laughs> and uh, and this what this is this entire blog article here is an objection to that that condition. Mm. I consider mm. that condition evil, uh, an act of an evil being. You t- the 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 most evil thing in in ethical skepticism's uh, uh, perspective or panorama of human behavior is to appoint yourself as God over another person, even if that Godship role includes your, your abject benevolence and, and the bestowal of, of money and gifts that you're going to give to those you, <laughs> you see as lesser than you. It's still, a, it, that is the original sin, is the assumption that I am God over another individual. Well, and so you, this, you did an awesome that, job breaking down in your article. You're like, not only... If we take this translation literally and if we take this story literally um, and we assume that the person who wrote the book of Genesis story, especially those first three chapters, which many first five, first three, first five, many contests were written by a different author. Um, yes. Yes. Um, first three. First three were a different three, author. Yes. yes. Because the, the, the treatment of the term God in particular. Yeah. Right. So. If you take it literally and you assume that that author really meant to be writing a straightforward account of what happened in the beginning of days, um, then not only is God not the protagonist, but he's the antagonist of the story, and he's most likely a lunatic. Like, he made every fucking thing ever and all of time and set the stars in motion so that the light of the stars millions of light years away would already be in our eyeballs when Adam and Eve were pooped out on the planet. And then he set up this, like, impossible task for them in a garden that he supposedly was locked into that needed them. He needed Adam and Eve to garden for... I mean, like, the whole thing I was just reading, and I was like, oh, 
<sighs> I'm a prankster god, Bill Hicks says. Yes. I'm and, killing me. <laughs> and if we could only go back and interview whoever it was that was not Moses that wrote the first three chapters of the Genesis account and be like, did you mean to be kind of like meh, 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 with this story? Because if yes. you did, that would explain a lot. Uh, <laughs> yes. I, I, I use uh, inexpertly use the German term auto off of an I think that's how it's pronounced. I don't know for sure. It simply means to, it's a Mark Antonesque way of speaking, where Mark Antony famously gave his, his monologue in, in uh, Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, mm. where he, he seemingly praised Cassius and Brutus, but at the same time, he was laying out a construct. We know he where absolutely the wasn't. Themselves. Yes. He wasn't. Yeah, right. he was laying out a construct where the people themselves would conclude that Cassius and Brutus were criminals. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's called an auto appeal. It's self-canceling. I, as I read Genesis, I begin to see the earmarks of the authors <laughs> attempting to cancel <laughs> the story <laughs> by means of its detailed structure. Oh. In other words, they were hiding the fact that they disagreed because some authority was telling them it must be written this way. So they wrote it in a ludicrous manner in order to falsify it. Faults about Which, the story if you studied it in depth. We know that that happens everywhere in politics and literature. Oh, yeah. But for oh, yeah, some that's reason, the of counter -propaganda. millions yeah. of people have been trained from birth, like you said, groomed in the traditional sense to believe that this is the truth and we should take it seriously and we should feel loved. The gospel. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, and, you know, all this started, I was, I was sitting in church and I was raised, you know, I wouldn't call it a cult uh, environment. I guess our orthodox grooming is the right term for this, This uh, at least one level below the cult raising <laughs> that, that you experienced, Ainsley. But uh, I was sitting in church, and the, and the pastor was, like, outlining the days of Noah and outlined when, when Noah, you know, built the ark, how many days did the rain happen, mm -hmm. when did the water peak, when did the mountains first peaks of the mountains show through mm -hmm. when did he release the dove and then the or the raven and then the dove i think it was that order uh you know when did the dove come back with uh, olive leaf in its mouth so i i said hey you know what i can develop a timeline i love developing timelines as you probably <laughs> see on, on my website so i developed a timeline of the flood and basically the the, the uh, day interval between when the first mountain peaks popped up through the water and the flood and remember this context is a worldwide flood uh, so between the time when Mount Everest peaked its way back through the water and the, the dove came back with an olive leaf in its mouth was 43 days. Mm -hmm. So my being a young enterprising pre engineering school, undergraduate school youth, I went and grabbed an olive pit and then prepared soil according to the agricultural <laughs> edicts. I <laughs> see that expression. This is terrible. <laughs> uh, and I planted it and stuck it on my mom's kitchen window, windowsill, and then in an area of the house that would get the right amount of sunlight for for uh, growing an olive tree, and then watered it and made sure I followed all the horticultural advice of an olive tree. It took seven months for that olive tree to sprout. So then I looked it up in, in – uh, I can't remember the text offhand, but it, it, it takes at least four, but most likely six to seven months for an olive tree to do what's called come true. And that's where we get the derivation the of the term leaf. come true. Yeah. It just means, hey, the, this tree is going to grow. It's not a dead 
a pit or seed, it took seven months for the first leaf to appear. So how then did Noah's dove have an olive leaf in its mouth a mere 43 days after the first mountain peak peaked through the water? And how old were you so, at this moment of introduction of reasonable doubt? I was probably 14, 15, right around, I was you know, early high school. The I shit's guess. already hitting the fan at that age anyway. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. <laughs> oh, god. Yeah, everything's brought into question. So when I wasn't thinking about girls, I was I was thinking about ontology and religion. But, uh, <laughs> Grr, all <of> yes. <laughs> but uh, that, that launched me down a pathway of, of beginning to question the literal nature uh, of the Bible, which most people do, you know, that's that's natural. But I began to question this autoephibin effect where if somebody assembles a story and and these were individuals, these individuals who wrote these stories, they were either farmers or, 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 you know, shepherds or, uh, or some type of animal husbandry. They knew the land. They knew how trees grew. They knew this way better than we know. 40 days. (laughs) Why would they include an element of objective measure that was abjectly false in its story? And that bothered me for a long, long time. It, whoever wrote that back then right. knew the writer that knew. it took a long time for an olive tree to grow. So why well, would they publish that olive trees were 43 days? Possible in 43 days. Go ahead. There could have been a raft of debris with an olive tree in it. Well, not and, salt and water. So the whole ocean was salt water then. The whole planet, the whole planet was, was salt, salt water. water. Yeah. I see. All right. I'm just trying to play devil's yeah. advocate. <laughs> anyway, that, just the, that just led me down this road. Uh, and it's not that I jump to the other, as I mentioned in our intro, not that I jump immediately into nihilistic skepticism. Mm-hmm. I, that's just another orthodoxy. And I didn't want to go there. So it took me 20 years to get through, uh, you know, formulating my thoughts. Finally gave it the name ethical skepticism, despite the, you know, the potentially boastful connotations. I didn't mean it that way. But it, it still it stands as an offense to those who are, are mired in the orthodoxy. And so as a 14-year-old, you said, well, I don't want to just go down the crazy hole and say fuck everything. That's pretty yes. mature. That's pretty mature. Pretty mature, not premature, sorry. Yeah. Uh, longtime friend of the show, Kevin Noel Olson, says, interestingly, some of the Kabbalists think that there is no perfect Torah on earth and that the real Torah is with God for what it's worth. Hey, you left the blank out. Now you... I don't know how to pronounce God with a blank. Yeah, you're not, never supposed to pronounce it. That's well, I'm not saying it in the original <laughs> language, and okay. that's what I was raised to believe made it okay. <laughs> um. <laughs> Uh, so uh, early on, let's see, uh, we're, we're going down this religion train, so I'm going to try and pull up something, uh, comments that have to do with Mark French. The book of Genesis needs to be questioned on many levels, and most especially its underlying math. Um, right. He and, said that before yes. the olive leaf. Yeah. yeah. And most Kevin, definitely. Yeah. And Kevin says, Adam and Eve in the story were innocent and had no concept of deceit. It goes beyond their possible understanding to disbelieve the serpent's deceit. Yeah. Why would they have been skeptical if God said, I put everything in this garden here for your benefit? It sounds like gaslighting. It's really It was, bad. indeed. It's bad. <laughs> Entrapment. And, and I think it's also Entrapment. Uh, gaslighting. How far back does irony go? Was irony around when they wrote the Bible? Absolutely. Yeah. I think is er, who who was the first intro? Well, I think it, I it, think it, it when you create a man with junk, 
and yeah. there's no woman. That that's probably the original case of irony. Right. <laughs> Here's some genitalia. <laughs> Have fun with that. <laughs> that's cruelty, is what that is. That's cruelty. Yeah. Uh, Deb Lynch on Twitch says, even in my rustic college experience i was tasked with writing about the notion ontology recapitulates phylogeny i remember hearing that phrase mm-hmm. um and deb lynch has been around a lot longer than i have i don't remember what that phrase means oh ontology recapitulates phylogeny why were we told that thing tess i i have heard the expression and i haven't investigated it phylogeny uh, as i as i interpret the term is is establishing orders and codes. Uh, it's what we did to the genetic record, if you will. Well, it's what we did to the morphology of animals to create the theory behind or the structure behind the theory of evolution. Mm. So ontology uh, produces phylogeny. I, I'd have to think about that for a little while. But I have heard the expression before. I just haven't investigated it. All right. Well, right now we're going to look up a question from Valaric Shard on YouTube. How long does an olive tree live underwater? That's what I was wondering, too, <laughs> before I did the raft thing. Um, how, <laughs> yeah, how did could an it olive last? tree survive the salt water during Noah's flood? Anyway, a lot of people on the Internet have, have asked, asked that question. Yes. This is so funny because, um, Tess, I used Noah's flood to justify my faith for years. And I studied it as a hard science. And... She also did a timeline did map time around lines. the room. Yes. Yeah. And and so um, it's interesting that your moment of reasonable doubt came from an extremely reasonable question from the core of the, the Noah's Flood story. Because I, I grew up studying flood science. I don't want to put quotes around it in case God strikes me dead. <laughs> but like, <laughs> very conf- this is the core. This is a core. Like, this is a core thing that we keep coming up against even as I left organized religion like six or seven years it ago. It might be the awesome insistence of cataclysmic mirage theory. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I will, every, I will time say we, this. every time we get too close to Noah's flood, I start feeling a little like, oh, like dangerous in my soul. <laughs> well, that was, I, the, I that was the hill you were going to die on. That was the hill I was prepared was, to die on because I assumed if I could explain how Noah's flood really happened to people, that would be a logical and scientific bridge for them to enter the kingdom of God, whereas they might have emotional or philosophical differences with the concept of Christianity. Yeah. That was my whole thing as a child. Well, I, I, you know, I think there is some science that can be brought to bear, ironically, there, as the term continues throughout our history. <laughs> but, uh, the, you know, when I, I did uh, some work for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia for the Ministry of Health, and part of that required me to travel to various, the four corners of the, of the nation, if you will. There's one corner called the Empty Quarter. And in there, what I was assessing was the viability of, of, of staging pharmaceuticals, 250 key pharmaceuticals that, that pertain to public health and getting them in the, in the optimal place to serve people who don't have vehicles and have to walk, basically, to a clinic and may not have the funds to purchase those pharmaceuticals so making those ethical decisions or recommendations on behalf of the nation, you know, they decide. I just make recommendations. But I wanted to survey the empty quarter and fully understand, was it truly empty and how many people were there? What conditions did they live in? You know, what were their challenges in, in, in obtaining the necessary uh, medicinals that they, that they faced? You know, how did they get the, the, the antivenom for the ASP, the local ASP, which was, uh, I guess, the, 
you know, the, the version of the, the white-tailed deer in the U.S. Mm-hmm. It killed the most people. And during that time, I traveled through from Riyadh into the empty quarter and then up back up to Dammam a number of times. You can see in the sand the regression of an ancient shoreline. And you can see I counted probably eh, maybe 400 shorelines that regressed in procession uh, through time at, that that all retreat back to the Arabian or the Persian Gulf itself. And it was it's clear when you look at the, the ruddish sand in Saudi Arabia, the high salt content, that at one time the Persian Gulf occupied almost all of that that uh, tectonic plate, the, right. the Saudi Peninsula itself is a—it's like the kneecap in your in your body. It's a bone that just sort of sticks out by itself, and it has its own maladies separate from every other bone in your body. The and Saudi it used tectonic to be almost plate completely is covered way. in water. Yes, yeah. it can lower and raise on its own, and the entirety of the Saudi tectonic plate is covered in this ruddish, iron-infused fine-grained sand. And when you bivouac or you camp out in that sand, which I've done, it gets in your nostrils, it gets in your teeth, Mm. it gets in your equipment, it shorts out your communications equipment and your crypto equipment. And I'm betraying part of my past. (laughs) And so it's a, it's, it looks like baby powder. It looks like um, orange aspirin, that baby aspirin colored baby powder. It gets in everything and it's got iron in it. And that iron shorts out your electronic equipment. It is a royal pain, but as I spent time uh, going through there, it became obvious that that area was covered in seawater. And when you have saltwater, you know, cover a a freshwater uh, uh, environment, it kills immediately. Mm. It's not a question of how long does it need to remain submerged. It can submerge for 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 a minute, and then the seawater regress, and everything's going to be dead there because the salt uh, will kill it. It's so high. so that uh, yeah, it's it's such a uh, you know offense to uh, to a freshwater environment that I remember I dropped my boat into a uh, from a freshwater lake into the ocean, and I meant to go clean it the next day. Oops. It was you know the the water line and part of the hole were co- covered in al- algae, and I came the next day to clean the boat and it was bone white, Christ. absolutely clean because the salt water killed within one day every single organism that was mm. freshwater oriented on that boat. Wow. I think the same thing happened in the tectonic plate in the Middle East. At one time that area was covered in ocean water. Now, is that Noah's flood? I don't I don't have right. the answer to that. Is that the flood that Gilgamesh outlines? Mm. I did take a look at you know the epic of Gilgamesh and Gilgamesh said uh, that he he was uh, he he spoke with a character called Utanapishtim. And Utadampishtim said, I was king over all the lands of the earth, which is derivative of Ur. So it, I, I took that to mean the Mesopotamia mm-hmm. and the, the valley, you know, the, the desert arid regions of Iraq, if you will. And he said that night, the ocean came over the citadel of Susa like an invading army and laid my entire city and civilization to waste and saved not one. That came from the south. The flood came from the south. Uh, because that's where the mountain of Susa is. That's the Persian Gulf mm. uh, or today's Arabian Gulf. So I think there's a possibility that the flood exists. But here's the clue. If the flood existed, yet it was more nominal, more, more localized uh, floods. Yeah, just a, a more reasonable what you might expect in Earth's history. Uh, and it was overblown religiously. Is it possible 
that all of our stories have some basis in truth, yet have been overblown and reinterpreted in solely religious agency. And and that's I turn that use that term agency as opposed to bias. Right. Um, that the all of the Bible stories, specifically speaking about this particular religion, have been forced to be literal rather than allowed mm. to breathe Correct. as a mythos or or metaphor which, or allegory, in which even. they would be far more useful. <laughs> right. And I thought, but and the thought had hit me early on. Genesis jumps around a little bit. It starts off with the creation of man as as a whole. And then all of a sudden it jumps back in time again and mm-hmm. goes to the creation of Adam. I think that Genesis, the original document that Genesis was taken from, was a play. In other words, the children were taught to act out that play for the adults so that they would remember the legacy before we had the discipline of worldwide you know, writing and permanent, uh, other than stone, permanent means by which we could record that writing, that we taught the next generation through enacting a play the the mm-hmm. story of our origins mm-hmm. and so i think it I, that's what i looked for were the trappings of a play mm. Mm. if the story was indeed going to be a story that predated written language and, and then so i think we it. see some of that i think we see some of that in genesis and that explains a little bit of its uh, uh jumbling around if you will they're they're acts in a play mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Kevin Olson says it's difficult to reject the Bible entirely. There's a lot of interesting things in it, if not taken literally in all cases or figuratively in all cases. We know that there were great floods. We know that the writers might not have known what, quote unquote, all the earth was covered means as someone attempting to explain the world around them rather than absolute dogmatic truth. I think it's quite engaging and fascinating. I would love it if we could get to a place where we saw these great religious texts for what they are as um, notions of the time written by hardworking and well-meaning people of a particular time in a particular physical location on the planet. Mm. Like when they talk in the New Testament about how men shouldn't wear women's clothing, everybody's like, see, that's why you can't have trans men. And it's like, no, men were wearing tunics. Like, men were wearing, we need to go back and look at context. And anytime you bring up context, a lot of the Christians I grew up with are like, oh, my God, you know. So um, I think it would be great to liberate these epic religious texts from various religions from the need to be interpreted as strictly literal, literal or else. Um. I want to go back to your uh, article, The Awesome Insistence of Cataclysmic Mirage Theory. You have an opening paragraph, a, descripting, a describing paragraph, but then you, your first paragraph that's not in italics, it says, a mirage theory is a false social construct or a mega hypothesis which is employed to dehumanize and enslave through a belief in its core tenets. So it's easy to take that and layer it over, let's say, uh, Genesis. Um, were you thinking about anything in the modern days that might be like this isn't this isn't one story? I mean the the cataclysmic mirage is not one mirage. It happens on micro levels and macro levels everywhere. I mean, doesn't it like our political system could be considered a mirage theory? Could it not? Yes, absolutely. We cataclysmic mirages are what are used to man, manipulate mankind. I don't know if you want to call it mass formation. I, I I haven't come to a conclusion on that term yet. But a cataclysmic mirage is this unresolvable, impending disaster that is your fault, for the most part, or could be partly your fault, 
and you have to do something for me as a result. So that, it's a, that play executes constantly throughout humanity. It's absolutely. A, right. So it's a narrative that's created, and then each individual has to play a part in it or be ostracized for not playing a part in it. Is that another correct. way to that's say it? Correct. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So there's a bifurcation that's set up by the by 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 making it a uh, cataclysm. You immediately force a bifurcation. You're either going to solve this problem that is about to hit mankind and is going to kill us all, or you're in the enemy camp. So it forces a bifurcation by implying cataclysm is on its way. It's almost like a mental uh, Chinese finger trap. Yeah, where you go in and then there's no. You have to have somebody else help you out. You have to push further in to get out. Um, yeah, that would be the grooming that's involved there. You, it, it is helpful to have someone pull you out. But you, and many times when you when you exit orthodoxy, there's a hook. It's like the little barb hook on a fish hook. It's painful to remove. Mm. It's very difficult to to remove. So it's not something that every person is prepared to do. Well, what we've detailed a lot on our show is that moment of reasonable doubt where you've questioned the narrative. And then you have to make a choice to either double down on the narrative to keep your friends and family and your social contracts and your agreements and your, your workplace relationships, et cetera, or you then go post-Orthodox. You, you break the dogma and you ask the thing that you're not supposed to ask. And I think that's the bar. That's what makes it so hard. We're, we're as humans, um, tribal, and we want to belong and when we encounter information that is risks ejecting us from the collective, that's a hard choice to make for a lot of people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you step to the middle, you're immediately on the other side. I, that really chaps my ass. <laughs> that's the part. That's why I wanted to create this term that, that rejected the other extreme. Mm. Uh, a lot of religious people read my blog and enjoy it because they sense the rejection of the other extreme, but mm. they miss, you know, the point where I'm, I'm also rejecting the <laughs> other extreme 8%. <laughs> right. But, right. I, but I think most people sort of appreciate that. Um, so that's what I'm realizing. I think I, I went from an extremely, an extreme right group that rejected all differences to what I did not realize at the time was an extreme left group, which rejected all differences. I didn't go running towards the left. I just happened to realize that my personal ethics didn't align with this extreme right Christian group and were aligning with this, these bluish people. Uh, and I didn't know anything about that group. Right. You'd had no exposure. I'd had like no, no expo TV, no just, radio. No, I just knew gay was bad. Abortion was good. Um, black people were good. Like the basic things about the bluish team I'd heard, you know, snowflakes, avocado toast, all those things that you hear growing up <laughs> in a reddish group. Um, <laughs> and so then I was realizing like, oh my gosh, like I just want people to be happy and, and have housing and food and for children to not be taken away from their parents and for like people to get married if they want, if they're in love. And I'm like, I guess I'm Democrat. You're a liberal commie now. <laughs> and That's then right. those people turn like turned out to be people who align with a particular extremist viewpoint at the exclusion of all others. And I had to <laughs> move on from that too. <laughs> um, and so now I'm in this middle group where it's like, I have 
strong ethics and strong principles, and I see those expanding and evolving and working out in the world around me in various ways, and I purposefully don't have stick to which mm. I think is what my parents' generation and their parents' generation, and by proxy me growing up in a regressive 1950s-esque household, were raised with, is the stick to um, you got to stand for something or you'll fall for everything. Yeah. Don't have too, too much of an open mind or your brain will fall out. Pick like, a lane or you're going to get, or you're going to get hit. Yeah. You know? Like, yeah. and yeah. so, so the, I, like I, I'm averse. I have principles that I find like, like harm principles in myself about harm and about radical re- honesty, radical responsibility for my actions. Um, but I, I am very averse to having um, a fixed opinion about any one particular modern issue. Mm. Yeah. I, I think a good example of that, not that we want to head this direction with, uh, with the uh, call, is that, that contrast between capitalism and socialism. Fight! The, as I got into advising <laughs> nations on, uh, I would call it their economics, but it's, I guess it's more applied economics. I, I originally viewed things in that bifurcated way that there's you know generation of capital bringing it back to social benefit and then there's the distribution of income to help raise the raise the tide if you will for the, the boats that are struggling and both of those are, are I think are uh, are uh, uh, magnanimous you know framings of those but of those <laughs> principles but I found the truth to actually be orthogonal to the principles of capitalism and socialism. That once you release unbridled socialism and unbridled capitalism, they both result in the same thing. They actually are the same thing. They both result in the creation of a royal class. Mm. The royal class is that class that does not draw its income off the margin or value of what it manages. It draws its income from the simple flow of money. In other words, that's where we get the term royalty. Mm. If you operate a, uh, a gas or, or oil field in Texas, you know, the Texas takes a royalty off the top. They don't care whether you're profitable or not. Mm-hmm. The first four to 8% goes to the state of Texas. It doesn't matter what you do. That's called a royalty. Mm-hmm. A, a tax on the other hand is taken from what you had earned from what you placed at risk. So there's a difference between a royalty and a task uh, or a tax. So what, what both capitalism and socialism serve to produce is a royal class. And what we miss is this encroaching power of a royal class. And it pertains somewhat to, you know, the suspicious views of the World Economic Forum that you introduced, you know, earlier, Dark. Uh, that that ro- creation of that royal class is that pronouncement that, hey, I am the benevolent God over these lesser creatures. And that I see as anathema to ethical skepticism. Mm. I developed a structure called value chain uh, nodal analysis uh, through my through the decades which I did strategy for nations and corporations. I started using that instead of classic views of verticalized capital and uh, and socialistic uh, notions. And uh, that's a lot of complex words, but it actually has specific application in how you structure the financials of a company. But in summary, it, it it pertains to the flow of value. Value flows like a river. Mm-hmm. Risk flows like a river. And then a thing inside money called margin flows in the opposite direction. Those who produce the value, those who bear the risk, should 
receive the margin coming mm. the opposite direction. In most of our markets, and I've done a number of market strategies, neither of those entities draw the margin. What they draw is the minority of the margin. Intermediaries and royalty classes draw the majority of the margin, yet they provide no value. That godship has to mm. be removed because the onus of that weight, those gods, if you will, of our society, that's what produces human suffering. We're having to carry this unseen God class. And that's, that's my objection. So I began developing corporate strategies based on this value chain rationalization. And they were so successful that I couldn't get, I couldn't even get to the sales meetings. It was so many companies were asking me to come in and, and either speak or develop their next strategy that I couldn't even get to you know, enough flights <laughs> to get to the sales meetings. It was enormously successful. There are actually two, uh, two evolutions in business that happened in 10, or 10 or 12 years ago that are, are some of the most uh, noteworthy uh, happenstances in business that happened as a result of these strategies. So I view things differently now, orthogonally. Mm. I think that same technique can be used with man's origins and these stories, these, these mythos, these, uh, these, uh, uh, what these orthodoxies which we're groomed into. If we look at them from an orthogonal viewpoint, that's often useful, objective and orthogonal viewpoint. So it's not being in the middle. It's actually turning the dial 90 mm. degrees to mm. look at it a completely different way. And that's one of the core ethics of, uh, of ethical skepticism. Now we're thinking in portals. Mm. Um, so way on back, and I think this applies to your, your little tend towards business and capitalism at the moment, Mark French wants your hot take on this issue. Bill Gates being uh, Bill Gates buying up a massive amount of farmland while also being invested in the companies that make the pharmaceuticals that treat symptoms brought on by monoculture. Can you diagnose that, doctor? <laughs> uh, yeah, monoculture is the dictation of one standard of production of food. It applies typically in agriculture now where you are told you must use a growth accelerant, you must use a spectricide, on your plant and in your soil. You must desiccate your plant by one method. And what we don't see is that all these methods inside the monoculture serve to, to accelerate the growth of the plant and destroy the five microphylla in the soil, which impart nutrition into the plant. So <laughs> numerous studies have shown that of the 110 nutrients that, that, uh, that compose human nutrition, all of them have been depleted out of our agricultural foods over the last 70 years. Yes. And it's accelerating in that regard. The net result of this, and it's in my studies, I've done cohort studies uh, across the globe. Those nations that eat this depleted agricultural product have accelerating autoimmune diseases, accelerating diabetes, accelerating endocrine disruption, accelerating microbiome disruption. They're suffering, they're obese, and they're dying earlier because they're eating food that is just calories in appearance. It looks great, but it's horrid in mm -hmm. terms of human health. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the, 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 uh, the uh, uh, if you will, after career uh, objectives that I have, or, or third career now <laughs> objectives that I, that I carry. But, but we're being blocked in that regard. When I, when I identify royalty and cartels, I'll give you an example. It's just not Before, as profitable. It's just, yeah, I think maybe what... Uh, that's correct. That's, yeah. that's a very good point. Maybe. Royalty is very profitable, but ethical trade has just a very thin margin. Yeah. Yep. 
I think continue dark. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. It's great. Um, um, I think what Mark French, what I'm going to tease out of Mark French's question is, um, there's been this, uh, recurring blurb about Bill Gates being the largest landowner in the USA or something akin to that. He's buying up tons of agricultural land. Um, and he's also invested in vaccines that treat disorders and conditions brought on by monoculture. So I think the implication is that this is in terms of you know, the money going back to the top, creating conditions where you maximize both the farming and the pharmaceutical mm. as a profit. that seems like a profit <laughs> a business model that people it would is. look at and say, hmm, that makes sense business wise. Mm-hmm. Do well, you, th- you think about it with COVID? COVID, the people who were hit hardest by COVID were those who had metabolic disorders. Yes. Why do they have metabolic disorders? The origin of the metabolic disorder are three classes of invasive bacteria that humans get in their intestines. Those invasive bacteria change the nature of how you absorb nutrient and calories in favor of calories. So even there, you're absorbing calories but not nutrient, and that ends up being not overweight but Mm -hmm. the disease of diabetes. there's a dis- or not diabetes, obesity. There's a distinction between being overweight and obesity. Overweight is you're sitting on the couch eating ice cream and chips every night. You're going to gain weight. That's being overweight. But when your endocrine system and microbiome system is destroyed, you're injured. You're wounded. Mm. That's what obesity is. So you look at individuals who have metabolic disorders. They have been injured by bad classes of bacteria in their intestines. Curiously, studies are coming out now that show that COVID exploited those classes of bacteria to Mm. spread itself throughout the bodies of those with metabolic disorder. Mm. So it isn't their weight, per se, that made them vulnerable to becoming sick. It was the bacteria that they had in their intestines. So you can see what we're framing there is bookends. We've Mm. got both on the farming side, the, the monoculture, which kills necessary human phylas of bacteria, in their gut. And on the right end, you've got the cure in terms of those inoculants and, and, and vaccines, which will help alleviate either the symptoms or the disease itself. Uh, and the one produces the other. We wouldn't have needed them in the first place if we had not made the original mistake. Right. Quote unquote mistake. Or is that, or is that just the business model? Uh, you being or a somebody, business model, correct. Yeah, a very test, long-term business model tests the ethical skeptic. Yes. Uh, you going around, talking to different large corporations, talking to different governments on different continents, uh, I'm even more interested now in, in maybe asking you if you have what models do you see happening right now that uh, you can talk about that, would be inspirational to people versus like we've been doing a, a lot of diagnosing of the fuckery of who's doing the fuckery and what the fuckery is. But I feel like there, there are people who watch our show. They're like, but what can we do about it? What models can we look toward? What efforts can we make to get outside the fuckery, to go beyond the mirage that you're writing about? Um, do, do you see things happening in the world that people should be excited about that they could get behind instead of just um, uh, in complement to the diagnosing of the problem. Is there, do you see or recommend cures that are occurring in our social structures? Yeah, probably two avenues. And you know, if you read the ethical skeptic of some people say, well, it's it's very uh, pessimistic or negative tone. Mm -hmm. And it is because it's pointing out 
you know, the, the fuckery. Is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but personally, I live a very positive and, and, and reinforcing, nurturing life. So there's a there is a dichotomy there. So the question you're asking is, are there elements of hope? Are there things we look forward to? From my standpoint, I and I'm not God, so I can't I can't project out into things that I don't know. There are th- some things I suspect, and we might touch on that with this second codon issue <laughs> later. Mm. Maybe if you want to go there. Yeah. But, but I think there are two things: the provision of value. What what I saw in my in decades of economics uh, research was that the provision of value on the part of the individual is the essence of our future. Is it's the resolution of capitalism and and uh, collectivism, if you will. To produce value and to undertake risk is how we serve those around us. It's our statement to the universe, here's who I am and here's why you need me around. Mm. I'm here to do this. I'm not your God. I am your servant. I'm here to produce this value and undertake this risk on your behalf. But but only that risk that applies to those within your reach. You don't have to go out and save the world. I don't have mm. to go do food <laughs> strategies. Yeah. yeah, yes. I don't have to go do a food strategy for, for Guinea, which I did. <laughs> but you don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. Loving those within your reach is the first task. Mm-hmm. So the two commandments, if you will, are th- that first one. I'm not God, but I am regarding some higher wisdom that I think is there. I suspect it's there, and I cherish that higher wisdom above myself. And then those within my reach around me, mm. I regard them as equal in that regard in, in, in that and deserving of that love. So I'll serve them by providing value and undertaking risk on their behalf. That's all we have to do. Once we hit that point, I I think from there is speculation, but I think there's something good on the other side of that veil. This I That's love a these beautiful, <laughs> tight answer to a very complex, complex question. What the yes. fuck do we do? Indeed. Like we yeah. just keep I'm hoping that I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Orthodox, we just these conversations over the last three seasons. We just keep people keep joining the conversation and rippling in and tesseracting in. It's like kneading bread dough. It's like the most beautiful bread that's never going to get baked. It's just like everybody's kneading in yet another aspect of this same bread, you know, like decentralizing the revolution. Should we be, um, and this is not me trying to bring a hot button topic into the conversation. I'm just mentioning it. Should we be sending money to the Ukraine or should we be sending money to someone that takes care of homelessness and child poverty and starving animals in, in your fucking town. your town? Like, um, and if you, I mean, like, these are scales these to are weigh. Scales, yes. These are scales. And it's a pie chart. I mean, like, I'm a very visual person. It's like a pie chart. It's like a balancing a mobile. Like, you're only given so much capital in a given day. You have some emotional capital. You have some financial capital. You have some literal temporal capital, the amount of time that you have to spend every day. And a huge chunk of that needs to be on ourselves. Like, the, the, the little ethics I came up for myself when I stepped outside of Christianity and all of my Christian loved ones were like, well, but... Can I let you around my kids still? Because if you're not doing that thing, then you must be godless and ethicless because that's what we were taught. Right. You'll go veering off into the abyss immediately. And so I had to come up with a way very quickly to confirm for people that I did still have personal. And for me, it was become myself Mm. and do no harm. And if at any point those things clash with each other, like 
it can't, it can't, me becoming myself can't cause harm and me trying to take care of everybody around me can't, can't. prevent me from becoming myself. Yes. And it's expanded over the last few years into this pie chart of, of duties, like the duty, the communities, like your community, your first community and community obligation is to yourself. Like my favorite quote from a homeschool magazine that my mom read out loud to me one time in the, in the eons back of my past was if it's not down in the well, it ain't coming up in the bucket. And, <laughs> and that just makes, it just applies to everything. Like <laughs> if you, don't be sending money to save animals in Ukraine, if you don't have enough money to pay your rent, correct. Pay correct. your own damn rent. Because if you're drained, you can't actually truly be helping. Well, how does this tie in? Maybe we can tie this into this idea of the cataclysmic mirage theory. So, um, uh, uh, mass formation psychosis is something we've talked about on the show a lot. You said that you don't know enough about it to have a opinion, which is the best answer. Um, I feel like what I saw happen with the COVID narrative around a bifurcation in what side you were on, whether you wanted to be one or not, um, seemed to have just that same level of divisiveness that went from political parties maybe to this vax anti-vax schism then went over to uh you're either supporting ukraine or you love Hitler, you love putin <laughs> somehow right that it, it, it's it's like the energy we talked on the show before about racism not um uh going away the prejudice of racism not going away when we said okay, maybe we need to integrate our schools and, and our shops and uh, maybe we need to let black people vote. And bringing that in didn't stop prejudice. I feel like it displaced prejudice into some other place. It was never dealt with. And I feel like that's what's happening right now with the divisions that we feel around the us and them-ism is that we're not dealing with this bizarre inability to see our neighbor because we're on, maybe, I think maybe because we're online too much, is that we see each other's Facebook feeds and we don't know the full complex person that's living across the street from us. Mm. To be nice to Very them. true. Mm, mm, mm. Um, Very true. So I, we're, We that, are trying to, to solve problems that are a million miles away. Right. Yes. When, and we're missing the problems that are two feet away. This is and where all we're, we were asked yeah. to do was solve the problem that was two feet or help solve the problem that was two feet away. Yes. If we all did that. And I mean, I guess I understand that that conversation comes from a certain place of privilege because like uh. you said, you went and you did a food thing in Guinea um, and that's a place that doesn't have, as far as I know, neighbors that have money to give money to the neighbors so they all have more food, you know? So in some senses, the whole planet is our neighbor and I'm not discounting that fact. I'm just saying, I think we need to swing the pendulum back a little bit Um We've been given so much guilt in the West about our privileges that I think it prevents us from nurturing ourselves into an actually useful state. We have so much guilt about our privileges that we think that all we can do is just give to people who are less privileged than us. Mm. And it creates this weird hubris cycle and this weird, like, I mean, it's it's nuts. I'm, I haven't quite coalate, coalesced the whole thing into a, a perfect phraseology yet, but like... Because of the guilt about our privileges, we 
maintain a level of hubris that even though we can't pay rent, we're still better off than people in Guinea who don't mm. have fresh water. And so, one, we can't complain. Two, we better be self-sacrificing for someone less than us. And three, it should really be someone in one of those quote-unquote third-world countries. So it's like, I mean, it's this whole... What's the, the fallacy? Relative privation. Relative privation. Yes, correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think I, I feel like just reiterating this whole thing that we just talked about for the last 10 minutes over and over and over for the rest of the show, because I think it's the most important thing. I And we're not going to, but I, I, I think it's really important, and I really appreciate your articulation. It's something I've been trying to articulate, and obviously Ainsley as well, have been trying to articulate that desire. I, I'm so glad we have this recorded so I can go back and listen to it a few times. Um, reframing my desire, like hearing your version of it and her v- version of it, helps make mine more real. The idea that we should just be dealing with each other and valuing ourselves. What I thought of when you were saying that is that um, if there is this idea of like loving life and honoring life, you have to recognize the life within yourself and take care of that first in order to really just, you know, go A to B. We're trying to save the world, go A to Z. Right. When we just need to go A to B, which is really figure out who we are and what we're doing and how to do it better. What do you need to and be a whole honor, person? And honor our own lives to, yes. to express itself before we start worrying about other people's limits on their expression. You know the cartoons that we all grew up with where they're, you know, like, um, Little Lulu, Little Lulu, do-do-do-do. You never watched Little Lulu? No. Or Felix the Cat? Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, um, Cast with a Ghost? So at some point in all of those cartoons, there would be a little demon on oh, one yeah, shoulder, yeah, yeah. a little angel on the other shoulder, and neither one of them was giving good advice. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Like, I didn't realize that until <laughs> I started talking about the little Republican on one shoulder and the little Democrat on the other shoulder. Yeah. Because I have, like, this little inner child of the conservative capitalist. Little red hen. Reddish voter. Yeah. And then this grown-up experience that I had of the bluish, liberal, progressive save the world sort of thing. And then at times I just recognize you guys will be talking about something and the little Republican will be like, and the little, or the little liberal will be like, Oh my God, privilege, you know? And I'm like, (laughs) neither of these things, it's these little guilty voices, you know, little guilty judgy voices. And neither of them are very helpful except in trying to figure out what is okay. Neither of those things. So what, what is an actually healthy response? Mm. (laughs) What can we actually do? (laughs) Yeah, that's that's that bifurcation where I want to turn the dial 90 degrees and yes. develop an orthogonal view of the entire thing. Orthogonal. It may be incomplete. It, it might be an incomplete right view, but that's fine. Is oh. be, Having an incomplete view is mm-hmm. fine. But we don't have to necessarily land on another fatalist conclusion just because we've departed from one. And I think that's key. So being tolerant of uncertainty is absolutely essential to a, a, a mature intellect and a mature spiritual mind. We talk about the idea of cognitive privilege sometimes on this show, um, which is the idea that you can look at it from a different perspective. So many people have not looked at anything from except beyond the, the mirage or the indoctrination or the, the, the cognitive grooming that they were given. They've accepted the authority, the authoritative story and the idea of getting out of that is that's that that moment for a lot of people, which feels like I will lose everyone I love if I make that first orthogonal view. 
Correct. Because it takes me out of love, perceived love, acceptance by the clan. If it's incredibly scary, I think once you've done it once, then it becomes easier to do it. But I think it's a stage of human evolution that we're not recognizing in each other. And we're talking across this cognitive privilege. As if we all do that. When you said that you, your, your blog sounds, you know, maybe pessimistic or, or, um, uh, fatalistic in terms of like the problems of the world. I say the same thing about our show. I love doing it. I love finding the problems and trying to diagnose the problems because I have the privilege, I guess, to that I'm, I feel okay in my own life to look into the abyss and figure out what's going on in the problems. What, what how could we be doing it better? Um, and I forget that some people are still locked into some sort of trauma state where they, they can't let go of their current perceptions enough to be able to to uh, entertain another way of thinking. They haven't ever done that. Never Whereas, done it. Um, Tess had to do that at 14 when he realized olive trees don't grow in 40 days. And I had to do it at a particular point and you had to do it. We realized like, oh shit, either my loved ones are stupid or <laughs> my loved ones are lying to me. What? Yes. Neither of those is nice to think about. And so it's <laughs> easy to just not think about that <laughs> and just to roll back into whatever the role was you played in that story. Dur, 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 dove brought an olive branch. Anyway, yes, I'm having a great time. Thanks for being on our show. And thank you so much oh, to everybody absolutely. tuning this is, in. This is very fun. This very is fun. awesome. I appreciate all yeah. of you guys online. Take a minute and share this with friends of yours that you think might enjoy this conversation. And you can let them know that we turn these episodes into a podcast after the fact for people that just like to listen to things. And you can find that wherever you like to find podcasts. Yes. Um, the Ethical Skeptic sent us three of uh, three articles that he put to the top of the page on his website. So We've we definitely can... delved into the idea of septum precepti seven principles of ethics that exist, whether God said they do or not. I really enjoyed that article. And I could just, I think we could do a whole show just on that article. Um, Ainsley was very, that was the one that I was uh, glued to. And Ainsley was definitely attracted to the the, first one where I read the title and I was like, Oh, this is where I'm going was um, post post Stockholm syndrome. (laughs) I absolutely adored that one. That was very brief, but you mentioned you wanted to get to, uh, the third piece that you sent to us, which I struggled with, uh, <laughs> the peculiar schema of DNA codon second letter. Um, I am happy to hear you talk about that and see if I can maybe um, chip away some more scales from my eyeballs because that's that was a that was a deep one for me, and I'm happy to hear the motivation for doing this piece and and uh, the cliff notes of what what this piece is about. Yeah, I own a uh, or I'm part owner uh, investor in a uh, in a company that produces, uh, if you will, the old technology of Damascus steel mm. as part of its work. Ooh. And Damascus steel, you basically are. And I also edit a lab that did material science research, so I'm familiar with the a lot of the physics behind it. But uh, Damascus steel, you basically are interleaving the process of of in- introducing carbon into iron, iron and nickel, which is steel, and then folding it and blending it over and over, and then pounding it with a hammer to drive away the slag, then heating it up again, folding it over, introducing some more charcoal or iron into it, 
And that's where you get these black patterns inside mm. the steel that you're seeing on the screen there. These are so that beautiful. That process <laughs> is the process of forging Damascus steel. And and uh, and men learned early on that this was close to being the metal of the gods. It was so strong because the carbon reinforces the lattice structure of the iron, fills in some of its its what are called vacancies, which make iron weak mm. and malleable and turns it into a super hard structure, but not brittle at the same time. That's the process by which knowledge is developed, mm. is this forging process. You must, you've got to have a catalyst. You've got to have a hammer. You've got to have fire. False heat and pain. <laughs> yeah, in pain. And this peculiar schema of the DNO, DNA codon second letter, or what's called base, more accurately inside the genetic science, is a product that it took me 20 years to to figure out. There's a there is a curio that is, and and I I mentioned the the probably the lead study that identifies this curious aspect of the DNA codex. It's a study developed by Kunin and uh, Novozolov, two scientists who who call this a, a uh, what did they call it? They called it a highly improbable anomalous event. And it simply means that there's a progression between the DNA words, and the DNA word is made up of three letters called bases. Uh, there's C, T, G, and A, cytosine, thymine, guanine, adenosine, I believe it's the name of But C, T, G, and A are the, are the constituents that fill in, or the alphabet, if you will, that fill in three-letter blocks that form a three-letter word of DNA, which is called a codon, and then that codon is matched against a specific amino acid, which is the building blocks of a physical you know, being, like a tree or an amoeba or a person. They're, we're all built of those same building blocks. But it's this code which directs how those building blocks are assembled. And it took me 20 years, and I'm, I'm a cryptographer, trained cryptographer, so I do look at codes, although that's not been the majority of my career. So there are other cryptographers who you know, far excel what I can do. But I did look at this from that standpoint, and it took me a while to break this code, and you've got it up on the screen there. In essence, if you look at that matrix, that's the result of the 20 years of work. The classic view of this, to try and put it in a nutshell, is that the code developed through chemical affinities that allowed the nucleon count in the amino acid to relate directly to the sequence, the CTGA sequence, of the word or letter of the word embedded in the codon, which is a curio. That's rather odd that that would happen, but that as evolution continued, this began to degenerate. As, as we added the third letter to the codon, this degeneracy appeared as what should and would happen inside the context of evolution. But as you look at this codex, one realizes that it's the first step of life. In other words, this codex has to be solidified and permanent before you can ever have evolution. So it can't have evolved because right. it's the basis of evolution. Otherwise, so, we would have turned into weird schleppy things or yes. amorphous airy blobs or we don't even know. Like, so this can, this can only happen once. It can't happen over and over trillions right. of times. And when we look at the probability of this this alignment of, of uh, nucleons, that means how complex or how massive the amino acid is in terms of protons and, and, and neutrons or, or atoms that, that make up the amino acid itself. 
uh, when we look at that complex complexity progression, it, it takes a three to one slope and it's bifurcated, it's bisected into two sections and it all lays along this CTGA, CTGA symmetry. In other words, this was manually assembled. This was not an accidental assembly here. And I'm an evolutionist. I firmly believe in the progression, the origin of species, speciation, the, the migration of alleles and the development of, uh, of our phylogeny or cladistics. As we are able to observe it on Earth. Correct. Correct. Yes. Uh, but, <laughs> yes. there, but I do have a problem with a biogenesis. I don't, I don't think the scientific evidence shows that life originated on Earth. From nothing. In fact, I think most of the evidence falsifies it. And this is one of those key evidences here that this code is so disciplined and, and so improbable. And there's an additional element here. You see the symmetry with the 24 uh, interval on the left, the 24 on the right, the mirror imaging of the start and the stop code, mm -hmm. start beginning on a prime number and the stop ending on an octet, even number, them being in the same position, yet mirror facing each other, 16 codons apart, uh, <laughs> all both eight separated from the beginning of their mm. CTGA progression. Then you take a look at that and you say, well, maybe there was a chemical affinity between the, the nucleon count and the chemistry of the of the codon itself, which can't happen because they're separated by several activities. So there is no direct feedback. But let's say that did happen. The problem is that they are also grouped into NO2 and then more complex NO2 or NO3 and higher isomers are all blocked in their same blocks. And those two philosophies run anathema to, to each other. In other words, if it had evolved naturally, we'd have an intermixing of NO2 isomers and and uh, nucleon progression because the two one won't allow the other to happen mm. to have both of them satisfied requires at the same instant of selection creation. yeah yeah the you only way you can get around those conflicting laws is through intentional selection intentional so construction exactly so there's more order there's more deliberation there is more impossible not just remotely likely likely but there's more impossible structure in this dual CTGA progression than there is in, in the, and I use the comparative, the uh, color bands on, on resistors in electronic engineering. You know, you could go and look at it and you find these little, these little uh, colored things laying in the soil, say 10,000 years from now and say, aha, these evolved naturally. They, <laughs> the color bands, <laughs> the color bands, you know, allowed them to be eaten by certain animals that were that were that favored those colors and then they would <laughs> excrement it out in certain places based on their habits and that produced this this banding according to the, <laughs> the resistor and the resistor's resistivity related directly to the band patterns all this developed naturally there's less organization in the resistor four band color code matrix that we use in electrical engineering and i, I used in cryptography less organization and deliberation there than there is in this codon assignment matrix so much so that really the probability of this codon remember it could, it could only happen once on right. earth because there is no evolution that produces because everything that. from that point is based off exactly. of this particular code. code we don't have Correct. multiple of these making multiple and if you trees have, if you have two codes the two species that are based on those two different codes can't reproduce with each other because they're using a different language altogether so, so you can only have one code Tess, and it, and as a biblical ahead, as a biblical scholar, um, what's coming to me out of all this numerology based on the number eight is that 
this is the best proof I've ever seen for why we should have a three-day weekend. Oh, yeah. Eight, 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 eight. Come on, baby. Oh, okay. Only a seven-day week? Look, he's talking about 24s, 64s, 16s. Right. But in all seriousness, when Dark read this article to me, and I'm I'm really glad we started with um, all of our various perspectives on the historicity of the Bible. Right. Because when Dark read this article to me, I was like, oh, damn it. (sighs) He's one of those people that's like, butterflies are too beautiful for God to not be real. Which is like a giant portion of people that I grew up with that like and myself included, that life is so fucking complex, there's no way that God couldn't be real. But I, I understand now that that's, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if this is the right, right one, but a, like a false premise, that, that um, life is so fucking complex that it couldn't have happened by chance. Mm. That doesn't necessarily mean the God of this particular religious text is the one true creator. Correct. We sort of skipped a step. Right. You know? We, like all that, all that we can say looking at this structure that Tess is outlining, is that like a logical person, free of religious and socio-political manipulation and grooming, would look at this and be like, "Ah, oh, yes, someone built that." It doesn't yeah. necessarily this, have to be Jesus's dad that did it. <laughs> and when, when I've when I've introduced this right. to uh, professors of, uh, of of biology or genetics, they they're like, "Okay, what you're introducing is irreducible complexity." Yes. I'm like, no, it's not irreducible complexity. I'm not a fan of irreducible it's complexity. It's a Christian it's thing. <laughs> one of the core arguments of, of you know creationism. I'm not a creationist, but this is unprecedented order. Uh, it's un, unprecedentable right. codification. It's like the septum praecepta. It the septum praecepta doesn't complexity. just show up on its own. Right. It is. It can only be constructed compl- is, through intent. It is also exactly. Intelligent, <laughs> intelligent, intentional construction. Correct. You're helping me break down a lot of stuff right now. I really appreciate this. <laughs> I can feel little bricks falling in my brain. <laughs> so this code uh. is, it's not unlikely. It's impossible. Mm. It's absolutely impossible. But let's, you know, science doesn't like the, the finality of the word impossible. Uh, yeah, what is it in Zero Dark Thirty? The heroine there goes. I know it certainly freaks you guys out. That uh, that was a great statement. But let's call it unlikely, highly unlikely. It's three point four two times ten to the minus twenty seventh in its unlikely nature. It's impossible. So I wrote in a, this realm but, with what we know. Yes, correct. Based on the context of unguided evolution, which I'm 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 an evolutionist. But I'm not in a biogenesist, and this is why. If I, I wrote a, a Monte Carlo simulation to develop this code, and and I punched the the uh, Monte Carlo stochastic input, it just means randomizing the input. I punched it once each second and did 335 intervals before I figured out, hey, I'm never going to get to this code. So I calculated how long it would take me to get to this code. If I punched that button and generated a new code every second, it would take 817,000 iterations of our universe before I hit this code. <laughs> That's how unlikely it is. So it's it, it's definitely a... Uh-oh. Oh, oh, I did that thing. Wait, don't say anything. I did the thing I, I accidentally did on a previous... Can you hear me now? Face stuff. Oh, wait. I can hear you. Okay, okay, there we go. All right. No, we could... We, I, I, I hit... You cut off your mic. There's a kill switch that I hit with my elbow one time before, and it was really sad. But I know oh, yeah. now... 
and being a DJ, I did that many, many times. I'm blabbering away and the mic is not on. <laughs> no, she gaslit one of our guests and our guest was in her engineer. were trying to figure out the thing that was going on the whole time and it had been going on. And then she realized and then pushed the button. And then we, of course, we didn't talk about it on the show. We just let it go. It was but, really sad. I do. I should need to go to apologize <laughs> to that guest and let her know that it was truly my fault. <laughs> it just wasn't. Anyway, so. it wasn't convenient at the time <laughs> to admit. <laughs> but I know now the the telltale feeling of my elbow mm. hitting that button. <laughs> but but you know, sum it up. I think that this it's an impossible code standard that must exist before evolution. So I think it falsifies a biogenesis. It doesn't falsify evolution by any means. But it, I call it here in the article, a lighthouse signature affixed to the lone, uncompromising rock amidst the raging torrent of evolution. It acts like not only, you know, what a crypto, what a crypto code does is it encodes your communication so that, so that the Russians can't, can't capture it and, and decipher it. Right. Well, this, this code here does the same exact thing. If, if somebody comes to our planet and looks exactly like us, in every single way to where they cannot be distinguished, yet they're based on a different code, they can't reproduce with us because they don't have the same codex basis. So what, what happens here is that we have this one code upon which all life is based on this planet, and that opens up a whole new set of ramifications mentally for me. If, if this base code is such an exclusive such an identifying feature of DNA-based life on our planet. Is it purposefully so? Is it a crypto trademark? Is it a definition of, mm. is it a brand, like a cattle brand, where if you pull up this CT, CTGA progression and put it up on a screen like we just, just showed, is that a barcode, a dense code, which identifies our heritage, our origin, our ownership, mm. and who we are, no matter where we are in the cosmos, we can immediately be identified as to our ownership and our viability for reproduction by looking at this code very quickly. Mm. It's our barcode, if you will. Mm. And so there are ramifications to this being an immutable code, which have long reaching repercussions. It, it, it tells me two things. Number one, whoever assembled this code was not, put it in surfer terminology, was not the creator of the wave, they were the surfer of the wave. Mm. In other words, the, the surfer takes what the ocean will give him or her, and they surf what comes to them. Mm. This individual who assembled this code was a surfer of the wave. In other words, they were subject to the laws of the universe. They were not masters of the laws of the universe. Mm. So even they did not the create, have the skill. Even the person that constructed this code was not the beginning of everything. That's well, God the beginning of us or our lineage, if you will. Right. Uh, but they but were here's the thing: playing in a particular lab with particular materials and particular rules themselves. Correct. <laughs> but they had the lab, and they knew the mathematics and the technique. This is just one flavor. This is just one product in a in a in a an established praxis, if you will. <laughs> so that's that's the other aspect of this: that this code is is competitive it, its exclusionary nature makes it an artifice of war if you will it, to me and this is in the speculation realm i'm leaving the epistemology of the code itself here and i'm going in speculation is dna a tool of warfare 
is it made to conquer the galaxy? Because once it gets on a planet, you can't get rid of it, short of a supernova. And even then, you probably don't get rid of it. It, it still broadcasts all throughout the galaxy. Is it a way of conquering and establishing a beachhead on a planet where you can't personally be there? Yet once DNA has set a foothold on a planet, it can't be displaced. You mm. can't reproduce it out of existence because you don't have its code. You can't inhabit that planet because it's going to infect and kill you. You can't see it, yet it's everywhere. So that planet is for all right. intents and purposes. Once DNA lands on it, that planet is yours from that point on. Once that, that to DNA me is, lands, is a method of warfare. Once that DNA lands, that planet belongs to that DNA and that DNA exactly. structure. It's that that yeah. that brand. That trademark from, this, from then on. The panspermia? Is that a part of the panspermia? That'd be part of panspermia. We got to yeah. get away yeah. from the idea of just saying DNA as if there's like only no, one. I, I just like this. I just <laughs> yes, like, correct. I, I like correct. this idea. I like this idea of um, life. Bill Hicks said that we're a virus with shoes. Like this idea, <laughs> like that life is sacred and we must protect it, is actually propaganda for a bully. Is this. It feels like that. Like you're not getting like life is going to do what it's going to do. It's going to keep r rolling on. And, yes. And there's this idea that we have to save life and protect life, which to me sounds like propaganda for a bully. Yeah. That life it, is. It, brings are, up it, it doesn't need to be saved. It's going to transmogrify itself into whatever it's whatever its trip is. We had when I ran my strategy firm, we had a competitor who screwed up probably four out of every five projects they did. They didn't really know how to do it. They would hire people three years out of school, They'd, you know, run the heck out of them for three years and then, then let them go or clients would pick them up. So the people who came through there didn't have the experience to accomplish the projects, which they were told to uh, or asked to execute by the clients. So consequently, four out of every five projects failed miserably. But the renown that was created through that failure propagated their brand. Because eventually the name would get out there, yet the bad stories would be stripped off the name. So this this was what we call anti-fragile things that prosper from disaster. Uh. DNA prospers from disaster. Mm, mm. When a planet fails and, and or explodes or or a super, supernova happens, its its seed is strewn throughout the galaxy and starts again anew. Yet this time, ten thousand ten thousandfold over what it did before. So even disaster is good news to DNA. Mm. It's almost as if the ethic behind DNA doesn't care how <laughs> many things fail, how many animals suffer, right. how many people die. It doesn't care. All it cares about is conquest of this galaxy and beyond. It's mercenary. Oh my God. Did you watch the video? One of your commenters commented on this piece and he, um, linked to a Terrence McKinnon video about mushrooms being spaceships, the spores being spaceships. Did you watch that? I, I didn't. Are you familiar Are you familiar with Terrence McKenna's theory about mushrooms and spores being the ultimate spaceships? No, I, I'm not familiar with that though. Oh. I know Terrence McKenna, not personally, but, I, right. but yeah, I'm not familiar with that. His premise was that if you're going to colonize the universe, that mushroom spores were the best spaceships, the way that they're designed. So that if a planet explodes and we have mycelium all over the planet, that the one thing that will survive, one thing that will survive in the vacuum of space is going to be uh, these these mushroom spores. 
And there, you know, one mushroom can create a tremendous amount of spores with the idea that only a few are going to do something. And it just applies that on a galactic level. <laughs> can we also talk yeah. about the potential for the moon being a megastructure? Because that's what I thought about when you were like, <laughs> but the DNA had to have come from somewhere. Correct. I just watched More than fall. likely, it was something that was frozen and something that was proximal to the Earth and dropped life in that frozen matter on the surface of the Earth. And so that's why I begin that article with this timeline, as I want to do, of uh, when the Earth, life, or excuse me, when the moon, the oceans, and life arrived on the proto-Earth, they all happened actually rather quickly. Luca is last universal common ancestor. It's the, the eons old version of MRCA in genetics, which is most recent common ancestor. Typically, Luca is what you use when you talk about eons of life. Archaea go all the way back to when we keep pushing this origin timeline back. Mm-hmm. Right now, I think we're at 4.15 billion years. Excuse me, goodness gracious. Uh, 4.15 billion years that we recognize as the origin of Luca on Earth. But we speculate that Luca probably most likely appeared about 80 million years after the formation of the Earth, which places it contemporary with the appearance of the moon and the appearance of the oceans. So there's this possibility that came into my mind, rather than this body called Thea that came in from out of the solar system, hit the earth, created the moon, and then took off into the cosmos, never to be seen again, this trillion to one, actually probably more than trillion to one accident that caused the moon. The the reason we created that, that theory it's a, it's a pseudo theory. It can explain everything and anything and nothing all at the same time was because the moon and the earth are, have the exact same isotope makeup. So that's, that's a curio that we have to solve and address. Is it possible that the moon came in early and went into, you know, it's, it's stable orbit around the earth, but was like Ganymede or Europa. It's a giant, dirty snowball, a giant comet, if you will. And that over time, it sputtered or desiccated. And sputtering is, in material physics, a particular type of release from the atomic level, the, the evaporation of, of a set of elements from at the atomic level. All the lighter elements, the oxygen, the nitrogen, the carbon, the boron, all those things that form the crust of the Earth sputtered off of the moon and landed on the Earth because it's the, the strongest and closest gravitational body. In other words, the moon brought the oceans. The moon brought our oxygen and nitrogen-based atmosphere. The moon brought the the exotic gases, the argon and the xenon. The moon brought all those materials that make up our crust, and that's why we're alike. Not because the moon came from the Earth, but the Earth grabbed pieces of the moon naturally as a binary and, and collected them on the surface. So if that's we weren't why we're so alike. fixated on this this idea that we figured science out already, you mm, know, like there correct. was Galileo in the way back days and whatever, and then now correct. there's us and we know science. Yeah, as if it. it's a fixated thing that we just continually determine more and more fixed truths that shall never be challenged. Just believe in it. Correct. <laughs> um, Correct. Like if, again, if we were to take this like hypothetical person and drop them on the planet with 
the ability to observe what's <laughs> going on, they would be like, hmm, maybe the moon came from the earth because there are similar materials, or maybe the earth came from the moon because there are similar materials. Correct. They wouldn't be married to either one because they wouldn't have all these sociopolitical and psycho-emotional and religious stories attached to what the answer needs to be. So that theory speculates kind of like a giant mushroom spore. <laughs> That the moon is just a giant mushroom spore. Well, they, <laughs> they would have automatic introduction because once the spores arrive, they petition the planet and say, hey, let me in. I'm a fun guy. That's Hello. right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's terrible. Peak moment. Peak moment. All right. We have 20 minutes left. I want to look at this beautiful chart that you sent in your email because this is what this is what i've been doing all the time is trying to talk to people about the difference between the ethical skeptic does all his own charts by the way yes the ethical skeptic has beautiful charts um but uh when recent social tragedies came onto the scene over the last few years um many people felt as though uh, there's no way of knowing what's going on. Only experts can read data. Um, you can't know if you haven't studied the thing. Um, charts can be misleading. Data can be misleading. Anybody can arrange something. You know, it's just like, and it became clearer and clearer to me that there are many different kinds of reasoning. And I would, I only had two in my back pocket when I was talking to people about it. I was doing the Sherlock Holmes thing, like inductive versus deductive. Deductive reasoning is finding a gun at the crime scene with the person's fucking fingerprints on it. That, that guy did the thing, you know. Right. It, simplistically, of course, we still have to go to court and ask questions, and maybe it was a plant. We don't know. But, like, da-da. And then inductive reasoning is like, well, you don't have an alibi, your clothing has suspicious materials attached to it. We know that neighbors saw you guys fighting three days ago. And then you craft this inductive case that makes it beyond reasonable doubt that that person probably did the crime, right? Um, deductive reasoning is the easier one. Yes. Sherlock Holmes tends to do the harder one, you know, where you find a candy wrapper in the parking lot and you know exactly what what factory it came from just right. by smelling it or whatever. Um, and then you made this chart that includes other kinds of reasoning. Um, for instance, um, we don't, I don't know deductively that aliens exist, but I'm beginning to feel through inductive information, like reasoning, which is collecting pieces of information that are all seeming to create this um, void space in my mind where you would plug in the puzzle piece of an alien existing. <laughs> um, yeah, and then a placeholder, you, that's right. Yeah. yeah, it's like all of this other evidence and all of these other accounts and all of this other government fuckery is beginning to kind of make the shape of aliens existing. Mm. You know, even though I myself don't know deductively that they do. And then you brought along abductive reasoning and panductive reasoning. Um, and so can you speak to this beautiful yes, chart that uh, you made with the lemmings? Yes, abductive reasoning is is a legitimate, quasi-legitimate form of inference. These are all forms of inference or what you draw from the assembly of a philosophical argument. And this is philosophy, by the way. So you, philosophy is stronger than heuristic. Philosophy trumps heuristic. So if somebody shows you an integral equation or maybe that barcode chart that <laughs> I've got in the second letter of the DNA codon schema, 
it, those are made those are partly made to intimidate their heuristics. And philosophy, can you, however, can you spell is that where word? what's that word? Where the rubber meets the road. Heuristic. H U E. Heuristic. Yeah, that's what you learn in college. Is heuristics. Okay. The the little tricks, the detailed tricks that are, are probably not going to be useful. In fact, I've, I think I've used one thing I learned in undergraduate engineering, <laughs> <laughs> but they're, they're probably not going to be useful, but you can intimidate other people with them and, you know, make it, make a, make math look super complex. Uh, you know, a mm. summation symbol or an integral symbol, all those things are outlining is a very simple mathematical construct, but it looks enormously complicated in the language of symbology of mathematics. It's made to intimidate and exclude. But if you can get past that, you find that Really, where the rubber meets the road is the philosophy of inference. And if you're skilled at that, you can run circles around most PhDs who dwell in mere juristic. In other words, they only know their language and symbology, but many of them don't understand inference. And these are the four flavors, if you will, of inference. We mentioned deduction, which is the strongest. Induction, which is valid but is weaker. In other words, Karl Popper introduced the problem of induction and said in induction is weaker and may not even be legit. I'm introducing th here a thing called abduction, where I'm not introducing it, I'm, I'm broaching it. Uh, it does exist. It's basically when you have appendicitis, abduction is, hmm, patient has pain in the lower right quadrant, patient has slight swelling in the abdomen, patient has fever, patient has mental fog, patient has said this distress has gone on for the last four to eight hours, abductively, I'm diagnosing appendicitis. It's based on an established praxis of knowledge. So I'm abducting, I'm grasping, which is Ooh. where we get the word abduct, mm, abduct and abduction, right. you know, right. <laughs> alien, alien abduction. Uh, that's, I'm grasping from the base of knowledge an inference that I'm able to apply. Mm -hmm. So it is a valid method of, uh, of uh, inference. It's just even vaguer. The problem is that it's overused. Mm. It's overused. It basically is saying everything is known except for some small gaps. And anytime you get a gap in your knowledge, all you have to do is reach into the knowledge set and draw out those elements which allow you to polish over that gap. Mm. That's invalid because you're using abduction when you should be using deduction mm. if, or induction if you can't deduce. So abduction can be abused to fill in gaps that that the user is not being completely honest about. And that's our first form of invalid skepticism, where we're forcing a conventional answer to every single oddity that we observe. That's my first objection. No, you do not do that. You do not use abduction in place of, of the need for induction and deduction. Allow things to be unknown for a little bit until you have an answer. Allow the unknown to yeah. exist. And yes. that's, I think that's the, your main point with your DNA article. Is yes, it correct. It, it introduces questions and the unknown uh, and speculation, but it does serve to dismiss some orthodoxy mm -hmm. at the same time. I, I don't want to make, I don't want to overblow that, but it has some ramifications. The fact that, that whoever assembled that code was not a master of the universe. They were subject to the laws of the universe, just like us. There's some ramifications there. It, yeah. It's not, it doesn't make me happy. Mm. In fact, it's distressing <laughs> to see that. It feels uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, I'm uncomfortable <laughs> with it. I did not, I did not want to see that. But, uh, but, <laughs> but nonetheless, true. now that I've seen it, 
<laughs> I know it's there and I got to deal with it. Mm. It's not the answer I wanted. Uh, the second thing is panduction. And this has uh, to do, that segues well into panduction. Panduction is basically, I have a set of beliefs. I'm not going to actually tell those beliefs, but I'm going to falsify everything that runs anathema to those beliefs so that I can enforce them without letting you know that I'm enforcing them. That's called panduction. Another name for this is debunking. Uh, mm. All I have to do, you know, anything can be debunked. All you have to do is go in and nitpick at some details and clients do this all the time. Let's drill down on the data. It's lazy. Yeah. They, they go, t they go two inches into the material that is, you know, 30 feet deep. They find one thing that they can raise question on. They're like, aha, I've debunked the whole thing. That's not how science works. Mm. That's not how skepticism works. Panduction is the, the deceptive process of debunking everything except what you quietly and surreptitiously believe. It's an invalid, right. completely invalid methodology of inference. So panduction identifies the bad people and the bad subjects. It's part of the 8% that extremism. And, and that's the second thing that ethical skepticism objects to artificial debunking on the part of this fake group of fake skeptics that has to end. If mankind is going to make the next step, that has to end if we're going to eliminate royalty and take the suffering off the shoulders of those, those inhabitants of mankind. All that has to end. If I were to take this back um, beyond current social crises, when Dark and I first started with post-Orthodoxy, I was doing a lot of religious deconstruction, and he was doing a lot of political deconstruction, and really launching into the realm of post-partisan understandings of current structures and post-partisan reactions to partisan problems. And um, everybody was fine when I was pissing on Christian stuff, but they didn't like it so much. Our audience at the time didn't like it so much when Dark would do constructive criticism on the Democratic Party. But it sounds like what you're saying with panduction was something that we were observing a lot um, in 2018, 2019, and 2020 to an extent, was uh, anytime we would bring up something that we felt the Democratic Party, the people of the Democratic Party, or the structures that run the Democratic Party needed to change in order for this party to do what it said it wanted to do, mm. our bluish friends would just start talking about how bad the red group was. And Correct. trying to force us to defend the red group's representatives or the or force us to defend the red group's positions on things. We don't have time to fix this right now. There's an emergency. Don't you see those guys over there? And it's like we, we're not talking about them. We're talking about the blue group. And and because it seems as though you want to make some changes and we're, we're doing constructive criticism and they would <laughs> just continually push it off into this this panduction thing. They weren't out to defend their own beliefs or their own positions or their own structures of oh. power that were that were having problems. Or even look at them. Yeah. I mean, that the metaphor I came up with was like, hey, look, there's a hole in your boat. Why are you attacking the boat? I'm like, no, I'm, no, I'm not attacking the boat. I'm saying there's a hole right there. He's attacking the boat, everybody. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Panduction. It's like a bad, bad version of the movie Groundhog Day, and we're in the later oh. part of the movie where he's just going through the motions. He's not even doesn't even care about the shtick. No. It's obvious mm -hmm. that it's you know that cataclysm is being used as a, a bifurcation mechanism. It's totally obvious, and they don't care anymore. They're just gonna use the shtick over and over. Yeah. <laughs> 
Tess, I really appreciate you joining us today. We have about five minutes left in our completely arbitrary two-hour discussion time. Um, but we're going to have to do this again. We're looking for subscribers so that we can hire a producer and be a job creator so that we can do more than one show a week so yeah. that we have time to have new guests and return guests. Um, I feel like my entire cognition has been elevated. Look at all these multisyllabical words I'm using. <laughs> Is that correct? Multisyllabical? Syllabic, I believe. Syllabic. Thank you. <laughs> She wanted to add another uh, one extra syllable, syllable there. Yeah. <laughs> I also use bigger words when I'm drinking for some reason. I'm not sure why. But yeah. Anyway, this uh, final thoughts, gentlemen. Um, yeah, I, I want to say thanks for coming on the show. I would love for you to come back sometime in the future. There's lots of things to talk about. I feel like these are the kind of shows that I have to go edit, listen to. <sighs> Learn, uh, learn, learn, actually integrate. My friend used to tell me all the time, it's one thing to, you know, to get the information, then, then you actually understanding it sometimes takes a long time. So I think there's been a lot to unpack here and I would love to have you back in the future if you would like to do that. And also we have a special project that we're working on where we ask our guests a question off air. So when we end the show, um, stick around because we have a project we want to see if you want to be a part of. Especially you. And... Nothing, I didn't mean that any bad way against previous guests. No. Um, and that's it. Thanks for joining in the conversation. This has been a really delightful way to spend two hours on a Sunday. Final thoughts for you, Tess? Uh, no, I just appreciate the opportunity to be on Ainsley and Dark. Enjoyed it. I, I anticipated it would go this way, just seeing your previous Aww. podcasts, and I enjoyed it thoroughly. Oh, thank that's you great. very much. And thank you so much to everybody that tuned in. Yeah, we're taking out our microdoses, and we'll send them to you when we get them done, more digestible bits. So stay on Zoom. Um, we'll just be down for a second for the outro. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for visiting our Outpost in the Borderlands. Post-Orthodoxy is a project of Sevier Studios. We host ongoing, interactive conversations centered around cognitive liberty, and you can join in by catching one of our live streams on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitch. You can also catch each conversation after the fact as a podcast by searching for Post-Orthodoxy wherever podcasts are found. If you take value from the work we are doing and the community we are building together, you can support the Outpost in the Borderlands for as little as $5 a month on our website, Better Time. That's betterti.me. Visit the Sevier Studios page and subscribe. You can also support The Outpost by following and connecting with us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, Instagram, and or Substack. Our post-Orthodoxy theme music was composed by Frank Pascal, and a special thanks goes to our voice actors, Amelia, Colin, Zbo, Rosie, Gabo, Vicky, Mokai, and Tony. Thanks for playing. <laughs> What's outside your reality bubble? I think I dribbled a bit, that last one.